The novel coronavirus outbreak that started in Wuhan, China, is the latest viral infection to sow fears of a global epidemic if not properly contained. On January 30th, the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency, acknowledging the risk the virus poses to countries beyond its origin in China and the need for a coordinated international response to the outbreak. Globally, the virus sickened, has sickened over 20,000 people, and there have been more than 400 reported deaths from the illness, and these numbers are growing daily. 11 of these cases of illness have been in the United States. The U.S. government has warned Americans to avoid all travel to China and has set up restrictions and public health screening on persons coming to, or returning to the U.S. from China. Given the urgency of the situation and the speed with which the situation is changing, we decided to record a podcast in addition to our regularly, regularly scheduled episodes to address this epidemic and to provide our listeners with information to understand the true risk posed by this virus, as well as how public health workers are responding to it. We will be covering a number of questions you may have about this virus, including how concerned should we be? How infectious is the virus? How deadly? How does this coronavirus compare to other recent outbreaks that have caused global concern, including SARS or swine flu? Finally, what can we do to keep ourselves safe and our additional precautionary measures necessary, even in countries like the US where there have been only a few cases so far? I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. In each episode, we'll look at a particular disease or health condition or something that we are exposed to in our daily lives that may affect our health. Today, I am joined by two experts on the epidemiology of infectious disease to discuss the novel coronavirus outbreak. The first is a good friend of mine from when we trained at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Justin Lessler. Justin is an associate professor of epidemiology at Hopkins and has studied emerging infections ranging from Zika to pandemic flu. You may remember Justin from a previous Epidemiology Counts episode on community immunity. Welcome, Justin. Glad to be here, Brian. Great. And we are joined by a guest whose work focuses on this topic as well. Justin, could you please introduce Dr. Michael Mina? Yeah, Michael is an assistant professor of epidemiology and immunology at the Harvard School of Public Health and a physician at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, he's really one of the world's leading expert on uh, the immunology of infectious diseases and uh, really excited to have him here. Okay, great. Thank you both so much for taking time from your busy travel schedules to talk to us today about the novel coronavirus outbreak. I know you both have been traveling internationally this week. In fact, Michael, you are calling us from a hotel room in Tel Aviv. Um, and likely a lot of, <laughs> that's right. And likely a lot of this is in response to this virus outbreak. Um, so I wanted to say I was traveling domestically this week and I noticed many people wearing masks in the O'Hare airport here in Chicago much more than you usually see. So people are obviously worried and taking precautions about this uh, outbreak. So let's start off with the obvious question. How concerned should we be about this virus? Justin, do you wanna start? Yeah, I think there's a couple dimensions of that, uh, right? One is like, where is it gonna go? Where is it gonna spread? Where are we actually gonna see the virus and are people outside of China at risk? Mm -hmm. uh, the second is if it spreads, and if it um, gets out there, how deadly is it gonna be or how sick is it gonna make people? And what's its impact going to be on health systems? Right. 
in terms of the first question, while I think there's some small chance remains that it stays in China, I think the, the smart money would be on it spreading globally at this point. I, I don't know what Michael thinks, but it's hard for me to believe, given how far it's spread now, that it's going to remain contained, though I do believe that possibility still exists. And even if it does spread, it's still possible to slow down the speed at which it spreads to give us more time to prepare. Uh, the second question is a lot harder, and I think maybe we can talk about it more later, but uh, it's going to be, I don't think we have a good sense of how deadly the virus is, and there's, for a lot of reasons, it might take us a little bit to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say it's not just, it doesn't have to be that deadly to be a big problem. Even if the death rate is relatively low, if a lot of people get it and it overwhelms hospitals, that's that's a huge public health problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. We're gonna so we're gonna unpack a lot of those things: how deadly the virus is, how fast it spreads. Um, but first, I wanted to ask Michael the same question. You know, how how concerned do you believe we should be about this virus outbreak? I think, in general, I I agree with everything Justin just said. Um, uh, I think that it's. I agree. It's unlikely that this is going to be contained in China at this point. It seems uh, all the signs are pointing to um, the fact that this continues to spread. We're seeing increasing numbers of countries pretty much daily having a new case, uh, maybe not quite daily. Uh, but at the same time, there's also some encouraging news that we're not really seeing uh, so far. Anyway, we haven't seen huge uh, explosions of cases in any other country outside of China. And so that's the uh, that's the one small sliver of, of hope that I think if we want to grasp onto something and, and wonder, is this potentially not going to really become sort of uh, completely widespread, that's something we could look at. But in general, I think the signs are pointing to it continuing to on its march outwards. Um, and then uh, in terms of how bad it is, I, I do think that we really don't have a good understanding of the denominator. When you're introducing this um, this uh, the the, the uh, conversation you said that there were over twenty thousand cases and and that's the reported cases but I think the the the, the real number is probably quite a lot larger and we're we're probably capturing just a fraction but wow. on the one hand that makes it sound worse that means it's a larger outbreak going on in China than we know of but at the same time the larger the numbers. Uh, in the denominator, that essentially means that the uh, attack rate or the um, the mortality rate is uh, decreasing along with that. So right. until we get those numbers a little bit better, I think it's going to be really hard to have a good understanding of just how how this compares to other viruses. Yeah, just to, just to go on with what Michael is saying, like we're in a weird place right now. Uh, the the virus could be spreading very very efficiently. Uh, but have a, low, a fairly low death rate, or it mm -hmm. could be spreading less efficiently and have a really high death rate. Mm -hmm. So we're not quite sure where we have, we lie in that spectrum right now. And, mm -hmm. I, and, and each, each scenario is scary in, in and of itself, right. Right. Yeah, so um, the... New York Times had a really interesting uh, infographic that I don't know if you if you both saw that showed those two axes, you know, on the on the y axis, it had, um, you know, how deadly viruses are. And then on the x axis, it had how fast they spread. Um, and I thought that was really useful for someone like me who doesn't study infectious disease to see it uh, see this outbreak compared to 
a number of other outbreaks that we've had to deal with. So, um, you know, I'm looking at it right now and it looks like it is, uh, it is, you know, there's a big box as for how deadly it is. Cause like Justin said, we're not really sure how deadly it is. Um, but it looks like it is more deadly than the seasonal flu, uh, but less deadly than SARS. Does that sound like a reasonable estimate that you understand? Okay, yeah. So I think that it's probably safe to say it's more deadly than seasonal flu, uh, at least because less or more people are actually susceptible to the disease. So it's more deadly for those people. Uh, but it's really too early to say uh, whether it's more deadly than SARS. I think the smart money is it being less deadly, but we don't really know because there's this delay between when people are confirmed as cases and when they actually die. And that could be quite long. So right now, you know, you see uh, that there's a, you know, 20,000 some cases reported and 400 some deaths. And you can't just divide those numbers because those 400 deaths are people who were reported as cases maybe, you know, a few days ago or even a couple weeks ago. So, so the denominator is a lot smaller. And until we get a sense of how, um, of when people are dying mm -hmm. compared to when they're infected, it's really hard to estimate that case uh, fatality ratio, which is, you know, the probability that cases die. Gotcha. And, and also just as another thing, that is cases. So those are people who are sick enough to be confirmed and tested in the hospital and mm -hmm. show up in China's reporting numbers. Mm -hmm. That's not infections. For instance, we know, or we're pretty sure that almost every kid who gets infected, like young kid who gets infected, doesn't even develop symptoms of any significant amount. Gotcha. Um, they're not showing up in those numbers, you know, and mm -hmm. they're probably getting infected, maybe even transmitting, but they're not getting sick. I see. Uh, so when we talk about case fatality, we're talking about those people who get sick, which is different than everybody who got infected. Understood, okay. So if we just naively divided the 400 deaths that have been reported by the 20,000 cases that have been reported, we would have an infl overinflated death rate from this disease than, than reality. Uh, well, <laughs> just <laughs> okay. go the other direction. Uh, so other direction. we would have an underestimate of the case fatality rate. Okay. So we'd have an underestimate of the probability of dying given that you got sick enough to get tested for the I disease. See. Okay, gotcha. But we would have a, it's too early to tell, but we'd probably be looking at something like a little bit of an overestimate of how deadly it is if you got infected at all. I see. But we okay. don't know the answer to that second question or, or the first one for that matter, but it's important to be careful with your definitions. Of course, and, and, and this is such a rapidly changing situation that you know, our listeners can probably understand you know, how difficult it is to calculate some of these numbers when you're still gathering all this information from so many different reporting institutions and, and places. And um, you know, it really can take a time before you have a clear picture of how deadly a disease is. Um, so Michael, so. Uh, I'll ask you the other question on the x-axis. It shows that the um, this infographic I'm talking about, um, again, there's some there's a, a box because we're not sure we can't put an actual point estimate on how fast it spreads. But it looks like it probably spreads a little bit faster than the seasonal flu. So, um, you know, nowhere near as fast as something like measles, but it looks like. Um, 
from what I understand that there's a, uh, like, um, someone's coughing or sneezing that uh, there's about a six foot radius that droplets can spread and, and this, this virus could live and propagate. Um, and so, you know, I, I want you guys to talk about this idea of infection rate and, and how many people can be infected um, for every one person that has a disease. And it looks like it's a little bit more infectious than the seasonal flu, but can you put some numbers to that? Yeah, so, so there's a lot that goes into whether or not, a, and, and just how infectious a, a pathogen is. Mm -hmm. So measles, for example, is so infectious because it can essentially uh, be coughed out or sneezed out of somebody when they have measles. But those little particles can just stay, stay suspended in, in the air for, for a really long time, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a true aerosolized um, pathogen. Whereas this particular, this coronavirus is, as far as we can tell, it really... Um, it really uh, likes to be in droplets and, and droplets are heavy, like you said, and, and so they end up falling down, which is a, a lot of the reason why it's not going to be as contagious as something like measles. Um, but then there's, so it's, uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion about, I, I, I haven't seen the graph that you're referring to, but I think you said that it's R naught is on the, on the x-axis there. Yes, and, and yeah. maybe you can take a moment to, after you make this point, uh, define R naught for our listeners, but. Yeah, so, so the R0 is, it's essentially this, what we call the basic reproductive number of a, of a, of a pathogen. Mm -hmm. And it is essentially, it's, there's a lot to unpack with it, but if you have a population that is fully susceptible to an, a disease, uh, a, a transmissible disease, and somebody walks into that population and carries it with them, the question is, how many people are they on average going to infect? And that's, mm -hmm. that's the R0. But I think you could, you could probably envision how, what types of things that could change that. A, a lot of the discussion, I think, what gets lost is that the r naught isn't just about the pathogen. It's also about the environment that, that, that that's in. Right. If you're in a really rural area and you're by yourself on a farm, you're probably not going to transmit to anyone. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so it's really dependent on, on what the setting is. Um, and it also depends uh, uh, what ends up happening is a lot of people say, well, if it if for every case you end up on average infecting two other cases, mm -hmm. the important thing is to remember that the assumption with that number is that it's in a susceptible population. Mm -hmm. So it's so that, that causes outbreaks to die out after a while. Once you have it, a lot of people who are no longer susceptible, that R not we start talking about an effective R R effective, mm -hmm. and that's that's a sort of a scaled back version of R not that's dependent on the fraction of actual susceptible people that are around. So if you walk into a room. And instead of 100% of people being susceptible, there's only 20% uh, of the people are susceptible. You're going to infect uh, many fewer people right. on average. Right. And, so, and, so and, and Justin spoke about this in the community uh, immunity episode in, on an earlier podcast and really described that point. So that's why um, you know vaccinations are so important. Obviously, we don't have a vaccine for this one. But go ahead, Justin. Yeah, so I, I wanted to say something, like when we talk about how fast the disease spreads to, mm -hmm. uh, it's not just r not, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, right. I think an easier concept to think about is doubling time. How long will it take the cases to double? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an effect of r not, but that's also an effect of how long it is between different generations of transmission, right? So mm -hmm. for the flu, the r not is a little bit lower, we think, than uh, the new coronavirus, but it uh you can infect somebody like basically a day after you're infected 
Mm. On average, people infect each other about two, two and a half days after they're infected. Right. For this virus, it takes, uh, it looks like it probably takes more like five days a week before mm. you're going to infect the next person. So even though the r not might be a little bit higher for this, which is this measure of how hard the disease is going to be to control, mm -hmm. it still might uh, spread a little bit slower than a flu epidemic. Right. Right. And then another aspect is whether you can spread it during the pre-symptomatic phase, right? And I, I know that there's a lot of debate about that for this, <laughs> for this virus. Um, but obviously, if you're walking around, and you don't know you're sick, then, you know, you have a lot more likelihood to spread it than if you're, you know, feeling really badly. And you're much more likely to stay home and not spread it if you're feeling badly, right? So if it can only spread during that symptomatic phase, uh, it's, it's likely to infect less people. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think we're confident and I'd like to hear Mike's opinion or Michael's mm -hmm. opinion on that as well. But I think we're confident that it's at least probably more transmissible during the symptomatic phase than it is sure. during the asymptomatic phase, even if it is transmissible during that asymptomatic phase. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And that that's really been um, this. There's been a, a ton in the in the media in the last couple of right. days about that. Yeah. Um, in part because there was a, a, a study that was um, published that suggested that there was a patient who infected a number of other patients before they were symptomatic. And, and that had to be withdrawn uh, mm -hmm. because they, they ultimately realized that, that actually that person did have symptoms yeah. when they thought they were still in the asymptomatic phase. Um, yeah, they never asked her if she was sick and she was like, right. no, Correct. I, I yeah. was actually really right. sick. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah. the and, doctor, but all the doctors in China are pretty convinced, or at least in Wuhan, are pretty convinced there's some asymptomatic transmission. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That's and that, that I think is, you know, it's really, um, there's there's a lot of reason to believe that a lot of that pathogens can transmit, uh, in particular the day before. So during, uh, sometimes it's called a prodrome where you where you you're not really symptomatic, but maybe you're feeling a little off, or maybe even before that. But that's because mm -hmm. the symptoms, uh, many of the symptoms in particular for this virus are actually driven by your immune response to the pathogen. Mm -hmm. So if you have enough of a viral load to actually really drive a sufficient immune response to start those symptoms appearing, that means you're probably also able to transmit theoretically. Um, but I agree with Justin that the probably the, the bulk of the transmission uh, from somebody is going to be after they're symptomatic when they're really coughing and, and, and this thing is like really pushing the body to transmit mm -hmm. it to other people. Well, that's when you start uh, spreading all of those particles, right? Through coughing and sneezing exactly. and all that. Um, so, you know, there's some caveats to what the R naught means, and there's obviously a lot more than just the R naught that determines how how fast a uh, virus spreads. We haven't even gotten to the fact that Wuhan is a transportation hub, and that has a lot to do with this outbreak. So we'll we'll get to that in a second, but um, just to put some numbers to it, from what I understand, I think we've settled on an R naught of about 2.6 for for this virus. Is that is that the latest understanding? Or I would say between two and three. Okay, let's say between I two and three. I wouldn't get any more precise than that. <laughs> that is fair. And so what that means is that for one, for any one person that walks into a susceptible, you know, body of people, um, that one person is going to infect two to three people. Now, um, I know that there is a a certain level of uh, infection that if you get below, then the virus can't propagate itself and it will actually die out. So. Is that is that dependent on a lot of things, or is there a certain R not that we? So, for example, if it's less than one, then obviously it's going to be not being able to propagate because that one person won't even infect infect another person. So the virus would eventually, you know, fade away. Um, 
But is there is there a magic number that that we look for in terms of you know okay if we can get it down below this, um, so one is that magic number one okay it is one but there's a big question that we have right now in terms of getting to one so if you remember the SARS outbreak right that mm -hmm. infected uh, around eight thousand people and then sort of petered out and died out that's amazing uh, so it, it topped out at eight thousand. Yeah, I think the oh. best estimate is a total of 8,000 cases or uh, around that. We're already 20,000 for this one. Okay. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. But it was much we don't more know, deadly. We don't, right. It was much more deadly. We don't mm -hmm. know how much of that was uh, detection. But the reason mm -hmm. SARS was able to spread so far mm -hmm. and the estimates of R0 for SARS mm -hmm. are about two to three as well. Oh, and the reason the virus was able to spread so far, but then die out is because the way those infections were happening, where you got that two to the three. Mm -hmm. So you can think of it like two different situations that would give you the same R not. Okay. One is every single person who walks into a susceptible population uh, causes exactly two cases, mm -hmm. right? And every single person does that who's infected. Mm -hmm. On another scenario, nine out of 10 people who walk into a population don't cause another case. Mm -hmm. And then that 10th person causes 20 cases. Right, right. And it would still be an R naught of two. Gotcha. Still be an R naught of two. Yeah, yeah. SARS was that second scenario. Oh, interesting. And almost all- The super spreaders, I remember The this. super yes. spreaders or the super yeah. spreading events because okay. it's not necessarily the people, it's where okay. they do it. Gotcha. Um, and a lot of that super spreading happened in hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we, and for SARS, when we really like ramped up our infection control in hospitals uh, and, you know, because most people weren't transmitting, we really got that disease under control pretty quickly and the disease was able to die out because it was gotcha. dependent on those rare infection events that were happening in a particular type of situation for the most part. There are exceptions, mm -hmm. but um, whereas this it doesn't look like this disease the novel coronavirus it doesn't look like it's as much super spreading driven spreader driven but we're not entirely uh, sure at this point gotcha. and uh if it is heavily driven by super spreading events and we can figure out where those events are it may uh be easier to control if then if there's more uh homogeneity in how infectious people are. Because if everybody's infecting two people, you need to get everybody. I if there see. are only certain situations where people yeah. are infecting a lot of people, you just need to figure out what those situations mm -hmm. are and stop those infections from happening. I see, I see. And I, and I think that that's, that's part of the, um, when I was saying before that, that one of the small slivers of hope we can hold on to is that we're not really seeing these explosive outbreaks happening uh, in international settings at this point. Mm. That could be part of the part of the reason is we're, in this case, whether it's super spreaders or not, we're actually identifying these people and and containing them so that they so that their potentially their effective R not is below one uh, in each of the little outbreaks that we're seeing abroad. We we still don't know, but that that's. Mm -hmm. Part of the hope is even if it's not managed in China at the moment, um, these smaller outbreaks. You know, the the obvious the obvious example would be you find somebody who's who's just traveled uh, back to the United States uh, from from a, uh, from Wuhan, for example, and mm -hmm. 
you immediately put them in a in a hospital room in isolation and you're going to get their their even if they're infected they're probably not going to spread so gotcha. that's yeah. that's sort of the, yeah. the hope there yeah i mean and we've learned a lot from sars like to my knowledge mm -hmm. at this point there's been no big hospital-based spreading of super spreading event outside of china and we don't even know if there were any in china so I right. think we, you know, that's because everybody's village, vi sorry, that's because everybody's vigilant now. And, um, and that's one of the, yeah, as Mike, right. Michael said, that's one of the rays of hope. Yeah, there certainly has been a, a major effort um, to contain this within China. Um, but, you know, I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but I think that we should expand upon this. One of the reasons this is spreading so fast is because it started in, uh, Wuhan, which is a huge city, is like 11 million people. It's a major transportation hub. And um, this was fascinating. In this same New York Times article I was talking about, um, I didn't know this, but uh, we keep comparing this to the SARS outbreak. That happened in 2003. And China is much more connected globally than it was in 2003. In fact, um, there are four times as many train and air passengers uh, in, you know, from China than there were in 2003 and much more international travel. So that is, to me, really fascinating. You know, you, you know, you can't just isolate the virus from the context in which it is spreading. You've got a huge metropolitan area, a very globally connected metropolitan area. Um, so in many ways, it makes the response that's required even more uh, severe, I guess, you know, to be able to lock down an entire city that big. Yeah, I mean, I do think uh, it definitely increases the speed and, you know, and the uh, takes away the ability to catch the virus early. But at the same time, all of those things that make it spread faster are the same reasons that we were able to figure out what was going on and respond to it so quickly. Oh, that's interesting. I, I would point you to the 1918 influenza pandemic, which is the worst pandemic we've had at least of a uh, respiratory virus and you know spread around the world in a couple years killing somewhere between 20 and 100 million people mm -hmm. uh there was pretty much no air travel i mean there were there was rails that, and ship and ships that helped mm -hmm. it tr transmit but it still managed to get around the world really fast yeah uh so that's really you a know, good point yeah yeah so uh, while i think air travel is playing a very big role in how quickly it's spreading I wouldn't make too much of it. And I think if we get too obsessed with air travel's role, we're likely to make some uh, wrong decisions and how best to uh, clamp down on this virus. I see. Yeah, really interesting point. Um, well, so one thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, um, and maybe we should have done this in the beginning, but we keep using this term novel coronavirus. So uh, let, let's describe, so we, you know, coronavirus in and of itself is a very loose term. In fact, I think, Justin, you told me earlier that, you know, the common cold is a coronavirus. I know SARS was a coronavirus, right? So we keep referring to this as the novel coronavirus, and that's because it's a new version of this coronavirus that we haven't characterized yet, right? So do you want to speak a little bit more about what this virus is for the lay person? You know, how, what do we know about this virus? Yeah, so so this virus is it, you're, uh, it is a it's a coronavirus, and that that's absolutely correct. They, there's generally four different coronaviruses that we look for each year, 
um, just normally and that, that we're always testing for uh, when people come in with cold-like symptoms into the hospital, for example. So coronaviruses aren't an uncommon phenomenon. They, they're something that, that humans have lived with and generally they're not particularly harmful to us. They cause cold-like symptoms and people get over it. Sometimes the, um, uh, the symptoms can, can last for a week or so, but usually people will do just fine and, and not be harmed too much with the exception of maybe people who are highly immunosuppressed or very elderly, for example. Um, whereas I think that the, the big difference between uh, the normal circulating um, alpha and beta coronaviruses that are usually around versus um, this novel coronavirus and then also MERS and SARS is just the, the attack rate or the, the, um, the um, mortality rate that's associated and the, and the way that it causes not just mortality, we kind of always obsess over mortality because it's an easy thing to measure, but really morbidity, the actual um, clinical problems that are associated with, with this virus are, are much greater than yeah. a normal like cold virus. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so that's so it is it is wrapped up in this family of very common viruses, but these tend to and part of it's it's the biology of the of the virus um, th that allows it to uh, do more damage to the host. And some of that biology is still being worked out. We're not you know it's not always clear why one virus that looks just like another one for you know more or less uh, can be so much more damaging. Gotcha. Can we talk a little bit more about how sick does it make you? I know I've had a lot of friends who have asked me as an epidemiologist, you know, if you're young and healthy, are you susceptible to this? I don't have the answer. I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist. So maybe you can shed light on that. Like how sick is this making people that are, you know, are the only susceptible people, the young and the very old, or is it everyone susceptible? So susceptible to infection and then susceptible to, to illness That's are a good slightly point. different. Right, right. right. Uh, in terms of like severe, severe disease mm -hmm. and potential death, mm -hmm. we know, for instance, that people over 70 are probably around six times as likely to die wow. than people in their 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, that's based on some studies of uh, the Middle Eastern Respiratory System mm -hmm. Syndrome coronavirus or MERS. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is another related coronavirus like SARS. And this, in terms of the age distribution of death, seems to look a lot like that. Okay. So most uh, of the people are in the 60s or, or higher? So you're, more, you're much more likely, we know you're, you're like much more likely, like somewhere between eight to 10 times more likely if you're in your 70s to get severely ill and die okay. than, you're in, uh, than if you're in your 50s. And we know that if you're in your 40s or 30s, you're about you know, half to a tenth as likely to get sick. And young children don't seem to be getting sick at all. That's interesting. Uh, huh. th this is all very preliminary, of course. Right. And we're basing a lot of this inference on what we know about uh, uh, MERS and mm -hmm. other uh, newly emergent coronaviruses. Right. But, um, that, so that's the relative risk. And we know a bit about that. In terms of absolute risk, it's mm -hmm. really hard to say at this point. Gotcha. Um, you know, I think the smart money is in most cases not getting that sick. But it's clear that a significant proportion of people are getting very, very sick, mm -hmm. are requiring... Um, you know, ventilation, uh, maybe Michael can talk a little bit more about that, um, mm -hmm. but are requiring some pretty intensive care. 
Yeah, did, Mike, do you want to talk about, Michael, do you want to talk about uh, some of the care that people need to receive from this? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll go back to the age thing. I think that the age is really interesting. Um, I, I did want to point out that there's a one little twist, and uh, certainly at this point, all of the all of the data that we're getting from China in particular, um, but really everywhere, is suggesting, just like Justin said, that this is really seems to be a disease where the severe cases, or even just the clinically um, the clinical cases at all, are, are really sh showing up in in adults, um, which is it's pretty unique. A lot of these, a lot of diseases are are also hitting young kids, but this this virus and these classes don't seem to be doing that. Huh. Um, and what that could do though, there is a potential that that could end up leading to as, as physicians and epidemiologists become more and more uh, in, in line with thinking this is a disease of the older individuals, it, could, it runs the risk of having physicians not even be using very scarce resources in terms of testing resources on the ground in China to test the little kids, for example. So, so there is a chance that we might be underestimating that I, that's total speculation on my part, mm -hmm. but I do I did want to point out that that's sort of a dynamic twist that could happen once you start getting and getting a, a picture of what this play looks like. Then you physicians on the ground might stop testing you know everyone right. uh, mm -hmm. who they don't who doesn't fit that mold. Right, um, and this gets. Uh, can I just riff on that for a second, Michael? Like the this gets to the issue of you know cases versus infections right it, it seems unlikely that kids are not getting infected mm -hmm. and maybe they're getting mild sniffles and those mild sniffles could lead to transmission you know we're speculating at this point but mm -hmm. it would it would be a stretch to think they were somehow immune from infection and so we're really here talking about who gets sick not who potentially can carry the infection and transmit the disease. Gotcha. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I, I have a couple of theories, you know, I don't know if I, how much I should speculate about them, but why older individuals seem to be the most hard hit and kids don't seem to be. But this, this virus, the, it actually uses as its receptor for cellular entry, it uses a really famous receptor called ACE2 or angio, mm -hmm. uh, angiotensin converting enzyme 2 as its receptor. And this is actually, this is a major player in the whole pathway for cardiac, um, cardiovascular disease and high blood pressure. And when it's dysregulated, it can cause all sorts of um, problems in, in older individuals in particular. And kids tend to be much more robust to sort of changes in blood pressure. Uh -huh. And so I, I, the, I, I, I would speculate that there could be a role for, uh, for older individuals being much more severely ill when you have a disease that potentially causes vascular leak and and sort of fluid to leave the vessels and cause acute respiratory distress. Uh, when you then pile on top of it sort of uh, 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 exacerbations of cardiovascular disease or, or pushing people in that direction, I, I could see where that could quickly on, on average sort of lead to a more severe phenotype in adults. Gotcha. Um, but that's totally, there, there's actually some evidence uh, from mouse studies after SARS, though, that uh, giving people ACE inhibitors, these are really common drugs that millions and millions of people in the United States to take all the time, um, that it actually giving giving animals blocking that pathway in animals actually helped them have more moderate um, uh, clinical symptoms from wow. SARS in animal studies. So yeah, that is a potential way to modulate the infection. Really interesting. Uh, yeah, well, that, that was 
very interesting. Um, so, so what are the actual um, symptoms look like? Are they, are they like flu-like or are they even more intense than, than the seasonal flu? Which yeah, I know so you might be, be yeah, so, so you might be picking up that we're, we're probably going to keep talking about this big range. So you go from everything from asymptomatic. Sure. Uh, and then the average person, my guess, and I haven't seen anyone personally with, with this uh, virus, uh, any patients, but um, my guess is the, the majority of patients probably have severe um, cold-like symptoms where they're coughing and have some respiratory trouble, and not, but not over, overly bad. But then it's what we're really concerned about are those people who really enter into the, the real severe cases. And those individuals, one of the primary symptoms is going to be respiratory distress. It's where SARS got its name. And this is you start um, being, your lungs essentially start to work less and less efficiently um, for a number of reasons. You get pneumonia and, and there's um, alveolar destruction, things like that. Um, and ultimately it means that the severe cases will have very high temperatures a lot of times, they'll have fevers, feel lethargic, really tired, they'll be achy, and then they'll start getting these respiratory problems that are usually preceded by coughs um, due to the tissue damage in the, in the respiratory system. And those patients are actually, we're seeing them going into the ICU, having to be intubated and put on vents. Um, and and uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are not necessarily getting out of the ICU. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of the whole spectrum of, of respiratory disease from the very, from the very um, asymptomatic to the very severe. And, and my guess is, uh, without having seen anyone with it, is that it probably looks more of there's probably a lot more coughing and respiratory issues than flu necessarily would, would oh, have. Flu is, okay. is kind of either quick and it puts you down, or a lot of times flu kills people because of bacterial secondary infections, which present a little differently. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the current challenges is pinning down that exact clinical case definition and who best mm -hmm. to test, you know, for instance, you know, people are doing fever screening at some airports in some countries, but mm -hmm. Uh, a fairly high percentage of the cases in China have not had uh, fever, but still needed to be hospitalized. I oh, mean, that's interesting. Definitely the minority, the vast minority, but they okay. exist. Uh -huh. right. All right. Okay. Well, this has been very informative. I, I, so one question that I often get, so, so we've talked about how the outbreak is spreading globally, but mostly, you know, the bulk of it, the vast bulk of it is in China. So, um, you know, the question I'm getting from friends and family is, you know, what should I do here in, the in a country that's not China, you know, where, where we've had a few cases, we're worried about things spreading, but so far, based on our, our public health response, we've got things pretty much under control. What should I do as an individual to keep myself safe, or should I even worry about this? So I would say it's not a time to panic, but it's a time to be cautious, and it's a time to start preparing. Okay. Uh, I've been telling my family that it's a good time to start using really uh, stringent hand hygiene measures. Mm -hmm. Get a lot better about washing your hands, maybe carry on some alcohol gel. Right. Uh, because there's a good chance it's coming. And, you know, those are measures that can help slow down its spread, help protect yourself and people around you. Yep. I wouldn't start wearing face masks at this okay. point. There's actually not a lot of evidence that face masks, at least the the surgical masks you usually see help you from getting infected. Mm -hmm. If you are infected, it might be a way to protect your family because it stops those large droplets from getting out there. But right. if you're trying to protect yourself, there's not a lot of evidence for that. 
but the hand hygiene's good. And then you can do something that will protect you from another disease, but will also protect you from this disease. And that's right. go get your flu shot. That's because right. what's what's going to happen if this is if this comes. And I think the big fear is even if it's not super severe, mm -hmm. uh, it will likely have enough cases to really start overwhelming medical facilities and clinicians. And all those cases are going to start centering at the hospitals and the doctor's offices. And the best thing you can do is keep yourself away from those places and, not, and keep yourself away by not having the flu. So go get your flu shot. And, you know, it'll protect you at least from the flu, even if it, you'd never need it to protect you from this virus. Yeah, yeah. I would, um, I would certainly reiterate that. Um, anything you can do to give yourself the best chance of not having any sort of respiratory like symptoms in the in the near future is going to be extremely helpful just a for your own peace of mind um you know even if you just were to go and go out and get the normal a normal cold or get get the flu you're gonna people are gonna worry that they have this virus and what that's going to do um the, so i besides being an epidemiologist i also uh, head up the molecular virology diagnostics at our hospital at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard. And one of the major things that we've been talking about with the hospital epi teams and, uh, and overall with the hospital administration is what's going to happen with bed flow and, and the way that hospitals normally function. So even if, even if there's very few cases, if we have to take precautious measures for everyone who comes to get tested at the hospital who probably won't have the disease, for example, but might have some other symptoms, uh, very quickly the, the health infrastructure in the country could, could become overwhelmed with just um, having to test people. Uh, and, and so anything that we can do with trying to not have to quarantine and use bed space that would normally go to regular routine patients but the question is, will we have enough beds to kind of find a place for everyone as they're waiting for their test results mm. is going to, it's a real challenge that we're going to be facing. And so anything you can do to, to get yourself to not have to ever feel any concern that you might have a respiratory disease would be super helpful for yourself and for public health and, and the way the hospitals are going to function over the coming months. Yeah, I'd like to reiterate that. I think that the most you know, likely large scale public health impact of this virus is not going to be necessarily your personal risk, but what it does to our overall health system and overwhelming our overall health system. Because even if say one in a thousand people who are infected need to be hospitalized, but it could easily infect, you know, half the nation's population, that's going to overwhelm every hospital in the country. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, cause difficulties for treating patients who are already there. And then obviously because concerns about the virus, as Michael said, uh, you know, we will have difficulties, um, you, know, you know, treating those people might also be difficult. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, personally, your personal risk could be low, but could, this could still end up being a very big problem. Right. Uh, so just because you start hearing like, oh, the case fatality rate or the hospitalization rate is actually a lot lower than we thought, doesn't mean it's going to stop being a problem at, you know, for people who work in hospitals and for people seeking medical care for other diseases and the like.
Yeah, I think that's a really good point that, you know, I, I think a lot of times when people hear global health emergency or this outbreak, they start thinking of some, you know, zombie apocalypse idea of, you know, that everyone's going to die from it. But that, that's not necessarily what the health emergency that we're so scared about is. It's, it's this overwhelming, you know, the health system infrastructure that we have in, in countries to deal with, with this bulk of people who are even just... Uh, you know, maybe not severely ill, but just sort of ill, you know. Um, so really good points. I also wanted to go back and expand upon something that Justin said, which is the hand washing. Um, you know, I just think it's good for the listeners to, to understand that that is probably the best precautionary measure you can do. And the reason why may not be, you know, because we, we think of this as a respiratory illness where it's floating in the air, you know, so, so it makes sense. People think they got to put a mask on to block, you know, breathing in the, the, the particles, the droplets. But really what, what we're seeing is that, you know, these droplets land on surfaces, right? And then you touch the surfaces like a light switch or a counter, and then you touch your face, you touch your mouth. And that's a very um, common mode of, of infection for these type of diseases. So um, it's good to know as a non-infectious disease epidemiologist, I have been giving people the right answer, which is wash your hands. That is one of the best things you can do. Um, and that was interesting to know that the mask may not be as effective um, as we thought, but it is a really good way to prevent um, infecting other people if you actually do have a respiratory illness. Um, so great points. Um, so, and also, you know, you touched upon this as well, the flu shot. So let's talk about this. You know, how, how concerned should Americans, let's just talk about Americans since we're recording and uh, we're Americans. Um, Compared to the flu, how people, how concerned should people be about this novel coronavirus compared to the seasonal flu? <laughs> so I, I think, um, I mean, as we said, we're still not sure of what the real numbers are going to shake out to look like, but I would say that most signs are pointing towards this being more severe of an infection than the annual flu. Mm -hmm. um, but perhaps more critical than that is that we have a whole population of susceptible people. So even if this wasn't more severe than the, than the, the annual flu, if, it, if an outbreak really does start to happen, for example, in the United States, and it starts to sort of become, uh, start spreading here, uh, there's a good chance that it could infect really huge, huge numbers of people that, that extend beyond what we would normally see right. from the flu. Just because with flu, there's a lot of pre-existing immunity, mm -hmm. not everyone's susceptible, and even some people who are susceptible have a, a sufficient amount of pre-existing immunity to really dampen down their infection. Right. Uh, and there's a vaccine, of course, to reduce mm -hmm. the susceptibles. And so here, I think, um, in the absence of a vaccine coming uh, online very, very quickly, we are looking at a, a, a fully susceptible population, which could, sure. which could really lead to a lot of, uh, of extra infections that we're not used to dealing with during a regular flu season. Right, right. So I was probably um, vague in the way that I asked the question. So clearly, if we don't control the spread of this virus, and it really, you know, if, if the outbreak becomes large in the U.S., We've got a, we've got a severe problem compared to the seasonal flu. But on a daily, but on currently as of today, you know February fifth, twenty twenty. You know what is your risk of infection? You know for the flu compared to the coronavirus. You know right. Well, in in the United States right now, and in most of the world, uh, basically probably everywhere outside of China, 
you're much more likely to be infected with the flu on any given day right now. Uh, so if the question is, what's my risk today? Mm-hmm. You know, and should I be, you know, if that person was coughing next to me, what should I be concerned about them giving me? Yeah, yeah it's the flu. But I do think that, uh, as Michael says, that, you know, this is a cause for worry. I think, yes, you know, there's sure. people out there saying, oh, you know, why is everybody concerned about this? They should be concerned about the flu. There are more flu infections every year, right, you know, than we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. But the potential sort of downside risk on this right now is a lot more. It's equivalent to, you know, a severe flu pandemic. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's based, as Michael said, on the number of people who'd be infected. Like in an average year, somewhere between 20, 10 and 20 percent of people are infected with the flu or have a flu illness and most of those people have seen the flu before so it's not necessarily that severe for them right uh in a pandemic and you can think of this as being a bit like a flu pandemic a third or 50 percent of people can get infected in one year Mm -hmm. um you know models would suggest even more and a lot of those people haven't seen the disease before, so it can become a lot worse. So I think, you know, there, there's this disconnect, and we've talked about it before, thinking about your daily risk right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the flu the is a bigger problem, as is like a car wreck or, <laughs> you know, falling down the stairs and breaking your legs, like right. at this moment. Yeah, but in terms right. of, you know- What could happen. What yeah, could happen and, this. you know, what we should be thinking about uh, sort of collectively mm-hmm. from a public health and policy standpoint, right. we need to be honest with ourselves about the chances of keeping this out of the country, mm-hmm. um, which I think are low, and preparing for, you know, a scenario that could be, could be difficult. Yeah. I, I don't want to, oh, you know, it's not going to be like the movie Contagion. I don't think... <laughs> Well, we hope not. not. You know, like, I don't think there's going to be, you know, high, high, high percentages of people dying in Mm -hmm. any scenario that seems reasonable to me right now. I could be wrong. Uh, But the, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be a huge problem and one of the biggest infectious disease challenges that we've faced in years. Got it. So, Justin, I, I wanted to ask you a question, um, which maybe maybe this was going to come up, but um, it's something I've been thinking a lot about. How long, given given all these really um, uh, really pretty unprecedented quarantines and travel restrictions that are now happening, the one of the questions I get from people a lot is, well, with all of this, you know, should we be worried? A, and I think we're kind of addressing that, but but really, how long out from today? Do we have to go uh, before we start to say, you know what? Maybe we will. We will go th- get through this. We we won't have uh, we won't have a huge problem here. If, if if for example, most of the travel is really dying down from uh, outward from China into the United States, for example, do you think there's a a window of time where we'll we'll start to feel some comfort, or 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 is it going to be quite longer, in your opinion? Um, all right, my flippant quick answer is a year from April. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think there's a couple scenarios, right? Uh, one scenario is that it 
stamps down in China, you know, we see no additional long chains of spread or epidemics outside of China. It sort of dampens down in China for whatever reason, you know, we got it wrong about its ability to spread in other places. You know, perhaps there's some factor we haven't even thought of yet. And uh, goes away there, no epidemics. And, and it's April or May, no cases in China, no cases anywhere else. We haven't seen a major epidemic anywhere else. That scenario, I think we could probably be confident at that point or reasonably confident that, you know, we dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, and then on the other end of the spectrum, it is, you know, it gets into the U.S. and starts or, you know, wherever you live and starts spreading efficiently in the next, you know, month or so. And then you'll, you know, Question answered. Uh, I, I think that the intermediate scenario that, that I, I don't think it's unreasonable that we see is that we see it sort of continue in China, start to peter out as we enter the summer, and we see some small epidemics or moderate sized epidemics in other countries. And if that happens, I think we need to accept the fact that there, that, you know, this is likely has some seasonal effects in its transmission, like we see with human coronaviruses. And that next year, when the sort of respiratory virus season comes back, that there's a reasonable chance that it could resurge. And we won't be 100% confident that it's not going to be, uh, that it's not gonna be a problem in, you know, where it hasn't spread now until we go another season and see it not spread widely. Um, yeah. That's when I would be, you know, that's when I'd be like, a, you know, willing to go out there and say, we've kicked this thing, right? Gotcha. But, um, you know, we have, it, it may, it may be, be a bit, but certainly every day or every week that we don't see a major, you know, epidemic in the United States is a week that we can become, feel a little bit better about the fact that maybe this isn't going to become the uh, thing we all fear it might. Right. So, okay, so you said approximately a year, let's say, let's say, let's roll with that. The, a year-ish, yeah. A year-ish. <laughs> are we talking about no travel to and from China for a year? I mean, what, what, what are the restrictions that we're talking about in that year that uh -huh. seems reasonable? I, I don't mean, think those travel bans are useful, personally. Okay, all right. So, you know, what are useful public health Because measures they incur, so public health, you know, outbreak response is really built on trust. We really need people to tell us the exposures they've had mm -hmm. and things like that. So, so screening. You know, screening, but we, you know, we need people to communicate if they've had possible, possible exposures. So, you know, yes, like I do think it's reasonable to maybe not be having direct flights from Wuhan. Right. And maybe some of the canceling of direct flights from China at this point are reasonable. I think the ban on anybody who's a foreign national, uh, who's been to China coming to the United States is probably counterproductive mm -hmm. because imagine you have, you or a loved one uh, has possibly been exposed. You think they possibly have been exposed and you have the choice of them getting sick and say Bangladesh or the United States, right? Right. You're going to want them to get sick in the United States. Yes. So you have an incentive to lie about mm -hmm. that exposure. And that's, that's what we don't want. We want people to be really honest with us. So 
So for that reason, these outright bans, I'm suspicious of. Gotcha. I do think social distancing measures in general, which, you know, reducing air travel and cutting down flights is one, are probably helpful. If it does get into the United States, I would think uh, liberal leave policies and depending on how bad it is, maybe to the extent of like, you know, shutting down workplaces and schools temporarily mm. might be effective. That type of stuff worked in the 1918 pandemic. We know it, you know, we know it did. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are things we can do to sort of slow this down. But I think it's important to think about it in terms of we're thinking probably now about slowing down, not stopping. And, you know, we don't want to do things that have other really negative downstream right. consequences or make it harder for us to slow it down in an effort, in a misguided effort to stop it completely. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, I, I've second all of that. My, con my major concern is actually now that the ban is pl put in place, in a way, it's a lot easier to put something in place than to take it away. And we see that all the time in government. And I, a concern of mine is really what, if this is, even if it's not, you know, especially actually if it doesn't become widespread in the United States, what in this current administration, for example, what is this, what is the policy going to look like going forward? We can, we can more or less assume that this is going to really be persisting for quite a while in China moving right. forward. There's, there's little chance that that that, that it won't become a long-term thing. Yeah. So that, that is a, a really important right. question that I think is going to have to have policy uh, folks as well as epidemiologists all come together and come up with some reasonable uh, options here because uh, uh, yeah. if Can't it doesn't do become widespread. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. so. yeah. yeah, and I, and, and I think there's, you know, we need to be, you know, thinking on, on the longer term, right? You know, there's people are working toward vaccines now i don't know how uh, likely those efforts are succeed there's some evidence that some retreat treatment regimes might work mm -hmm. in reducing the length of um, infection so we certainly want to be thinking about all of those not only as personal protection and treatment for patients but you know for instance if we had a way to treat people and reduce their infectious period and potentially prophylactically treat people that's something that could reduce the reproductive number by quite a lot relatively right. easily mm -hmm. and actually uh, stomp this out. You know, it, measures like that, um, if we got those tools, and I think it's far from certain we will get them, mm -hmm. uh, could have really outsized impacts in my view. Yeah, that's an, that's another interesting point I wanted to ask you about maybe one of the last things we'll talk about. So, you know, we don't have a vaccine for this. You know, how realistic is a vaccine development? I know that takes a lot of time and we may miss, I, for SARS, I believe they didn't come up with a working vaccine until after the outbreak was basically over, right? Yeah, um, so, so, but since SARS vaccine development has really come a long way, mm -hmm. um, in particular rapid vaccine development. Now, uh, I wouldn't, I, I don't even wanna take a, a guess at whether or not this will, we will come up with a, a working vaccine um, coronaviruses have been with us for a long time. There's been vaccine efforts for a long time, and That's a good point. Uh, and we still don't have any vaccines. But uh, there's a, a huge amount of resources that are being put into this at the moment, and and um, and one one thing that is different now is that there's entirely new platforms that just didn't exist.
to um, trial new vaccines and to really create um, the proteins that are needed to go into the vaccines much more efficiently and rapidly. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, there's um, the, the it's a different scenario and setting that we're in now versus when we were in SARS land. <laughs> um, yeah. But I but I don't know. You know that the key then is can we actually find a, a vaccine antigen that that it, that the virus won't escape, for example, and that people will actually safely respond to. And you know, this, so it's a lot of moving parts. Gotcha. So we have a better capability to to develop vaccines quickly now, but we still probably can't rely on that happening as the way to tamp down this outbreak. Um, yeah, and I'll and I'll give you a quick example. Moderna, which is just a, across the river um, in Cambridge, Mass. They've been working with NIH and a number of other folks, and you know they they have a timeline set for themselves that they would like to have a prototype in phase one trials by April. Mm -hmm. um, you know that's incredibly fast yes, for a novel fast. virus, and and just the fact that they're willing to even give themselves that deadline, whether or not they meet it, is a different question. But mm -hmm. um, you know that's uh, that speaks towards um, how different things are looking now that's in terms amazing. of just having that capability. Yeah, although you know. You get to phase one, and then there's still a lot of well, right. Phase two. Phase I said three. nothing about anything beyond phase. Right, one. right, right. You know, but that is an <laughs> yeah. incredibly fast timeline. Um, <laughs> pretty amazing. So, yeah. So, Justin, you were talking a little bit about some of these other prophylactic measures. So, not a vaccine, but but ways to, uh, you know, potentially stop the infection from spreading as efficiently. Um, do can those be developed quicker, or is that? Uh, is that something that we've used to, to deal with other outbreaks in the past? So I think the question is, is do we have a uh, set of drugs all, already in our arsenal that used together in particular ways can uh, reduce the period of being infectious right. or be used prophylactically? And are those, and are those particular drugs ones that, you know, are widely available and have minimal side effects. Mm -hmm. You know, there uh, is some evidence out of Thailand that they think some people think they might have gotten a protocol together that has some impact, but I think it's early days, it's too early to tell, and I wouldn't, you know, put too much confidence in any reports at this point. But uh, it's more of a hope than something I'm confident of happening at this point. But uh, certainly having that type of uh, tool would be a game changer. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that would be a game changer. Okay, I think we have covered all of the topics on the outline. Did we miss any important points that we want to make um, for our listeners about this outbreak? Well, can I, can I just make yes. what for me is a closing thought, right? Is, you know, the situation is developing rapidly and every day we think about this differently. It was only, you know, a week and a half ago where if you'd asked me, I'd say, you know, I think this is probably, you know, this is concerning, but I'm not sure it's going to become a global crisis. And obviously now it's, uh, I feel completely differently about That's that. That's very scary. In one um, week, your whole thinking is changed. Yeah, about a week and a half. So this, you know, so everything about this is changing rapidly. So everything we've said here today should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, you know, it could be a week from now, we're like, oh, whew, it all went away. Or we could be like, oh, this is worse than we even considered a week ago. So there's a lot of uncertainty. It's a fast growing situation, but 
I think the appropriate way to think about it now, because I think that's what a lot of people want to know is, you know, cautious preparation, not panic. Um, but, you know, thinking of this something I'm going to have to deal with, it's probably not going to be great. It's probably not going to be the worst thing that ever happened in my life. Um, and, you know, how am I going to do that? Not, you know, so that's what I, I would say, but the situation's changing every day. That's a, that's a great summary. And, um, you know, this is a this is a situation in flux, which is why we decided to record this podcast in um, such little preparation time. And I wanted to thank you both uh, so much for taking time out of your busy, important schedules to, to talk about our, um, this outbreak with our listeners. Um, so thank you, Justin. Thank you, Michael. Um, and before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June this year in Boston. And it gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening. We hope you learned something about the novel coronavirus outbreak. And we will be back with you with another episode soon. Thank you.